0: Hello and welcome to Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I had magic, the kind of magic I would have would be baking magic. Because baking is magic.
1: That's a good choice.
2: (laughs) Baking is chemistry. It's real magic. My name is Caitlin, and if I had magic, I would have the kind of magic that uh, made it so no one could find me. Hmm. My children would have no idea where I am and nobody would be able to like find me in the library you know like those weird people when you're at the library wouldn't be able to talk to me about their weird conspiracy theories and emails wouldn't be able to find me i would just i'd be able to turn it all off
1: would this be like something you could you could turn off because i feel like that would make book signings difficult
2: well i feel like i'd be able to turn it (laughs) on and off like it's magic so you use it when you want it and then the rest of the time you know you can still not be a hermit crazy person
1: but when you want to when you want to be a hermit crazy person, you can really lean into it.
2: Yeah, which would be most of the time, probably.
3: <laughs> you have clearly put a lot more thought into this than I have. Because <laughs> um, I'm Kristen, and if I had magic, I was just thinking I'd want mysterious woods magic. I don't know, something where I could just like go outside and talk to the trees. I just feel like that'd be cool. I don't know whether they have anything interesting to say, but I, I would listen anyway. <laughs> So many things suddenly make sense, Kristen. I know. What would they say to you? And would they be true? Who knows,
1: right? Do the trees speak lies? (laughs) I'm Cameron, and if I had magic, it would probably be a necromancy.
3: It probably would be? Called that one. None of us are surprised. (laughs) We'll just
2: start by banishing you to Antarctica now.
1: There we go. There aren't any trees to tell lies there.
2: Kristen would go with you, and both of you would be sad. (laughs) Nobody to necromance and nobody to talk to. That would really stink.
4: A waste of magic on both ends.
2: I'm Adrian,
4: and if I had magic, I think I would want some kind of magic that would allow me to just repair things without any cool. of the effort. Nice. So like holes in your clothes, doorknob falls off of the door. These are yes. both things that happened to me today <laughs> that I'm now in trouble. Oh, no.
2: so. so practical. That would be very useful. Practical magic.
3: I mean, you could also take it sort of metaphorical and you could repair relationships or you could fix broken hearts I'd, i don't know you could you could do some cool stuff yeah i love that well if it was those little things you could like leave a conversation
2: and be like oh why did i say that and then you could be like nope Fixed. and then fix the conversation oh, that is actually what I, want.
0: Amazing. That is very much what I want well a big welcome to adrian tuli author of sweet and bitter magic and the forthcoming sophie and the bone song which is releasing in april so soon tell us about your books adrian
4: yeah so i basically classify my books as whimsical, sapphic, YA fantasy about sad girls. That's pretty much my brand. Um, Nice. Everyone is sad. Sometimes they get happier, but for the most part, they're still kind of sad. Um, Sweet Inventor Magic (laughs) is about a witch who is cursed to not feel any love, who teams up with a girl hiding her own magic as they set out to try and end a memory-stealing plague. So a little bit of loneliness, a little bit of grief and writing about a plague in 2019 before there was a plague. Yes. Um, Unfortunate premonition.
3: Um, Sweet and bitter magic also has some of my favorite tropes, which is grumpy girl and sunshine girl. And, there's only one bed, which is really exciting. There's just a lot of great stuff in it. I highly recommend. just
4: wanted to throw all my favorite things all in one place. (laughs) Like what's the point of writing your own books if you can't write what you want to read?
0: So today we have a very interesting topic. I'm excited to dig into this. We're going to discuss today magic as an allegory, particularly for mental health. So to start us off, let's just, you know, the basics. What is an allegory and what role does allegory serve in a narrative? So I was like, i was going to Google like
4: the definition because I feel like I'm going to say something and it's going to be wrong. But essentially, to me, um, and again, referential definitions, allegories serve as a way to delve into discuss and explore a topic without explicitly discussing that topic itself. So with this particular conversation, you know, looking at magic and power and magic systems as a way to explore some of the, you know, themes of mental health and explore some of those kind of darker areas of the brain that, you know, maybe some people would say, what place does this have in a fantasy novel? Well, we can explore that through magic and still kind of come out on the other side, achieving the same investigative result.
0: I like that. I feel like with any allegory, the true power is being able to teach without making the things you're you're teaching or showing in the narrative or exploring more palatable, because there's this layer of removal between the writer and the reader, the narrative. People can uh, digest what they're ready for, and if something is too hard for them or they're not in a good place to digest it, they can still have that removed.
3: I think there's also something to be said for the way allegories often allow you to reach your own conclusions sometimes an allegory will will give you the lesson you're supposed to have learned but a lot of times you sort of have to piece it together and I think that that also makes it feel really relatable to a larger group of people than it would if you were to get super specific about what you meant and and exactly what you're supposed to take away from it
1: well especially with a topic that's as complicated and loaded as mental health it can be really helpful to create a framework where people are reaching their own conclusions based off of questions that you're posing through the story. Because the act of coming to your own conclusion after being prompted to think about a subject, I don't know, when when you have this complicated of a subject, I think that'd be really helpful.
2: As soon as we started putting these questions, well, Aaliyah put these questions together, as soon as I read them, the story that immediately popped into mind was A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness, which is a book about grief and processing the death of a loved one from the perspective of a child. And that doesn't sound like a fun book at all. And if I saw that description on a book, I wouldn't buy it because I'm like, I don't need any extra drama in my life. Thank you. But a story about a a little boy where a monster visits him every night and allows him to, like, act out in all the ways that he wants to, that's much more uh, easy to process. And just like Aaliyah was saying... I think it gives room to have people think about ideas that they normally wouldn't feel comfortable thinking about maybe or identifying things either in themselves or the people around them that they normally wouldn't see because they're looking at it from the outside and from a new perspective. Or even for a writer to process their own own things that are going on, which I feel like happens more often than not. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I love allegory so much because it allows so much room to talk about things that are difficult without actually talking about them.
0: So why magic? What makes magic in particularly a good basis for metaphors?
4: I think it kind of comes back to some of the things we were talking about, that layer and that level of removal, but also that idea of, interpretation and personalization. And I think that with magic and fantasy as a vehicle, you have so much opportunity to let your readers make decisions and be a part of your narrative in ways that you simply can't when they're grounded in the real world. And so not to to build off a little bit what Caitlin said sometimes you write and you look back and you're like oh there's my trauma um and so when I was when I was working on Sweet and Bitter Magic and I was working on you know Tamsin's curse how she you know is cursed not to feel any sort of love and how that affects looking at a sunset or taking a bite of a biscuit or you know anything like that that like absolute constant removal and writing through that lens I looked back on it later and I was like oh this is me during a depressive episode and it was kind of cathartic in a way to think of having power in moments where I've don't feel power, and to be able to tie that to magic, and so I think that's sort of where this topic as a whole came to me was me being able to find ways to tie feelings of feeling powerless into magic, which is inherently powerful.
2: I like that.
1: I think another point worth discussing is that, like with mental he- with mental health, mental illness, like like the consequences of it are very real, but a lot of them are extremely interior. Right, they're in someone's head. You so can say you can't take a photograph of it, but I guess if you're really good, you probably can. My point <laughs> being, though, <laughs> that when you're writing when you're using something especially when you have magic involved you can create easier to track consequences for things that exist in the real world and that can help make connections that without that level of inventiveness that you're much more difficult to do otherwise
4: that's a really good point i think you can also see or visualize something that tends to be a bit more ephemeral because it's you know laid out in a system and you can actually see a results in b this action is this consequence this spell has this result or you know this power leads to that and so i think that's a really good point as well
3: yeah that's that's a lot what i was thinking about as like what makes magic such a good framework for an allegory is is that so much of magic is about cause and effect it's if this happens then that happens And I think that leads to really interesting conversations and it creates problems that are concrete in a way that a lot of the things that you are allegorizing... that you're making an allegory out of, aren't. And, and so, like, I was thinking of when you trap a tiger, which, I mean, that's magic realism, so it, it's sort of got a magic system, but there's a very clear cause and effect. The character thinks that if she can trap this tiger, then she can save her grandma's life, and that translates really well to a story about all the sort of things we try and do to keep death or change or grief at bay and the way that stories help us heal. And so I think that cause and effect make it a really useful tool, especially with magic.
0: So usually soft magic systems are the ones that are more allegorical. And by soft magic systems, we mean those with less defined rules, more focused on the power and the wonder of it. If that makes sense, can magic systems still serve as allegory? If they're hard magic systems, aka the rules are tied to the physical realm, there's specific cause and effect, nothing different happens...
4: I think yes. I think that you always sort of have the opportunity to allegoricalize yeah. something. <laughs> As I said that, I'm like, that was a mistake. <laughs> um, to, I, I feel like you always have the opportunity to build the framework of something, even if there are, you know, more specific rules, if it's much more um, cause and effect. I still think that there are ways to make that effective. And I think that there are just kind of different ways to interpret it. One thing that I found myself kind of accidentally doing as well in Sweet and Bitter Magic, the other character Ren is hiding her magic from her her family who's afraid of what magic means in a person because of the consequences it had on its on their family and so she keeps this gift trapped inside of her and at the end of it she you know goes back to her dad and she's like finally willing to talk to him about this thing that she's been hiding from him for so long and you know I had people reach out to me afterwards reading it and being like that was kind of a really cathartic coming out scene of finally going to your parent and say I've embraced the side of myself that like I never felt or thought I had before but this is it and you can do with that what you will but this is what I've found from it so even something as specific as like I have power and you know this hard magic system does x y and z can still kind of come back and serve as allegories in different ways if
0: you mean to or if you don't I really like that and I think just from you know thinking back over the books I've read every every story with a hard defined magic system seems to have a moment where the character must embrace that side of them even though you know, soft or hard magic, the character still has to come to this tipping point where they decide, you know, that is part of me, that is something that I'm going to use instead of letting it use me. And I always see that as a, a very moving moment when when the author authors do it right in that when the character finds acceptance, suddenly they can access the power in the right way. Suddenly they go from the bad guy's about to stab me to Oh my goodness, now I can stab the bad guy. And it's it's kind of an exciting moment.
2: Where we all wish we could be in life. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> I have to say that the example of that that immediately jumps to my mind is the Stormlight Archive. Right before any of the principal characters swears the next uh, Knight's Radiance oath, Mm -hmm. something to think about. It's not really an allegory. In that case, just everyone has PTSD and it dominates their character arcs. It just so happens that every time there's a, there's a major move in that character arc, it's accompanied by what basically what you were just describing.
3: That's a, that's a great point. Yeah, his his hard magic system really has character growth built into it, I guess. Like you don't progress and get more magic unless you improve as a person, kind of. <laughs> Which, I mean, that's a good way to, to do it. You don't have to work as hard on... It's out of
0: allegory and into literal. Exactly, yeah. So on the technical side of things, how should writers go about doing this if an allegory for mental health is deliberately something they want to include in their work? Do we start with a metaphor or with the magic or does it just kind of happen more naturally? That's an interesting
4: question and I I think it would probably sort of depend on the writer's um, process. I am a severe pantser to the point where I come back and I realize I've actually made a skirt instead of pants. Um, And then I have to figure out how to put legs on it. So I very much sort of uncover things as I write. And so I think a lot of the time I don't even realize that I'm being allegorical until, you know, second, third revision. And I'm like, oh that's what my brain was trying to tell me that I was not smart enough to understand yet so like for me sometimes the magic comes first and then as I'm you know shaping the system where the characters are interacting with it I can start to pull patterns and say oh I see this is actually you know this correlates with that but in my in my newer book the new um, duology that we just announced this was much more intentional so I do have magic as a as an allegory for mental health because that's my brand I guess Um, (laughs) but that I I went into to that the pitch the elevator pitch I knew what the allegory was going to be and how the magic was going to be shaped so uh, maybe I'm growing maybe <laughs> I finally bought a pattern at the store and the pants will actually be made the first time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: love it well I almost think I mean I love that you you can say that and because I feel like so many writers when they're beginning feel like they need to do everything all at once and I feel like so much of it, each draft, you end up working on something and it doesn't have to be all the things. And for me as well, I feel like themes, allegories, things like that all come later when I've got the story on the page. And I'm like, oh, look what's happening. Or, you know, where you look back and you're like, there's my trauma. Let's put this out here for real, you know. It doesn't have to all come at the same time. And, I mean, I feel like sometimes people start with an allegory and they end up pushing it too hard and it turns into a preachy book. So, like, I'm, I'm sure that's not how your book is because she's a good writer. But... I think that that's something you don't need to have at the beginning unless you happen to have it at the beginning. It, it works differently for everybody, and it probably works differently on every single book.
3: Everyone here knows that I love Mackie Stiefvater. Um and I'm going to totally butcher this quote, but I just remember reading an essay from her at some point where her whole point of the essay was, everything is a metaphor. It will It will become a metaphor whether you want it to be a metaphor or not, so be conscious yeah exactly like like (laughs) people are gonna take what they're gonna take from it and i obviously think there are ways that you can make your metaphors and your allegories strong and like there are wrong ways to interpret a text but there is something for being intentional even if that happens like on draft six or draft seven or further down the line than that just just to consider it even if you don't really think that your book is a metaphor book your book needs metaphors.
1: <laughs> whether or not you, you put the metaphors in intentionally, you should take a good, long, hard look about what showed up, whether or not you yes, invited it, and you. make sure it's what you want to be there.
4: Someone will find
0: something. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, we'll go ahead and move on to the next portion of the podcast where we critique an audience submission. If you'd like to check out the text of this submission for yourself and see all of our notes on it, you can view that on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com litnation If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, a quick summary of this week's submission. Two sisters mourn their warrior mother's murder, but when the elders come to crown a new queen, it isn't the sister who expected to get the crown. Personally, one of my favorite things to read is always the breaking point in sibling relationships. So fascinating to me because, you know, they grow up best friends, then then they break. And I love reading that. So I loved seeing that between these two sisters, how one moment they, they kind of had this back and forth. One was the stronger one, one was maybe more talented in, in other areas. It's interesting to see if this moment breaks them or not.
3: I'll totally agree with that. As someone who has lots of sisters, I love seeing the, I guess, the interaction here and seeing how Celine. Clearly loves her sister, but also clearly has some problems with her sister. I I just think that it's an interesting promise for the rest of the story.
0: I liked the older warrior sister's view on good armor versus bad armor, I guess. I don't know. That one little phrase um, when she talks about how her other sister tried to um, bury the mother in the good armor tells me so much about her. It tells me her priorities are more practical minded, that she knows enough about armor to decide what good armor is. Um, that she wants to use all her resources, and that she's maybe a little more violent-minded, which is very interesting.
1: I like the uh, the sort of implied political interplay between the council and the monarch, that if the queen is going to perform the switcheroo on who the royal heir is going to be, she has to actually like get the rest of the ruling body on board with it. I, I like that kind of a nuance.
2: I really like that Celine has a personality that seems like a silly thing to say. But a lot of times when we have, like, this chosen one trope where there's, like, the one sister who's supposed to be the queen and then the other sister gets it, like, it seems like the sister who gets it. Or like the chosen one tends to be like, I don't want that. And to be just a little bit too pure and a little bit too innocent. And I love that Celine is like calling her sister on her crap. She's like, you are acting like a child. Stop having a temper tantrum. I, I just like that. I, I feel like they have a real relationship and not like a weird fabricated one. It feels like people who have spent a lot of time with each other and are used to the stuff that's happening. <laughs>
1: If there is a metaphor for who these sisters represent, it's buried deep enough that they still look like real people on the surface.
4: <laughs> I'm a sucker for twins on the opposing side of like one single ambition, so I was very into this immediately. Um, in terms of there's so much to explore in a relationship like that, especially when one gets something that the other wants, and how that and all of that shared history and shared genes and <laughs> you know every single waking breath, how that's gonna come into play. So.
0: What are some things that could use a second look?
4: I think that there is a lot of room to dive deeper into some of the world-building elements. Um, You know, we start with this kind of large inciting incident of the mother is dead and lots of things are happening, but I wasn't fully grounded in the world yet, which makes it a little bit hard to fully buy into the stakes, not knowing... the the full scope of these girls lives what their history looks like together what their history looks like with their mother what their you know political ruling is like how what does the queen do there's a council so you know does the queen have the power is this a figurehead i think that there's so much that I want to learn in the opening pages because I want to know where I am and who I'm rooting for and how. Um, And I didn't fully feel like I, I
3: knew that from these pages. I'll totally agree with that. I mean, one thing, this is like just a small specific example, but there's this point in these pages where Celine thinks like, oh, I'm not the firstborn daughter, so it's not my job to rule. And that made me question like, oh, what is, your, what is your role? I mean, clearly you have responsibilities. What are they? Like, what is the place you take on in society? And just, I think just answering some of those questions would make for a stronger opening. The other thing that I thought of was that I, I feel like we talk about this a lot, but this is a pretty distant third person point of view. And I think it would have helped me feel more engaged if I got closer to Celine as the point of view character like there there's a part where Celine and her sister are talking about how the queen's hair has been cut because someone really wants to humiliate her but there's not much of a reaction to how the sisters actually feel about that other than like i don't know i think Celine is like a little upset but but we don't really get the specifics of that and i think just really getting in her head and showing us how she feels instead of just telling us how she feels would make
1: this a much more powerful opening talking about stuff on the outside of her head for a moment i found myself wanting at least a few more detail concrete details about the setting to help me keep getting a sense of time and place i feel like the biggest detail we get is that they're called amazons but i don't know at least to me that's pretty that's pretty nebulous that's a pretty large dartboard that we could be landing on anywhere as far as what to expect for what's going to come next and like we get, we get that their main enemies called the Dúrin, which is kind of a nitpicky thing, but that's that's what the dwarves are called and Lord of the Rings. are Dúrin's folk. So if it were me, I might call them something different, but that's your call. And the other thing I found myself wondering about is it seems like Celine, you know, has no interest in ruling, and she has some some valid points about maybe why her sister isn't the best person for the job. But her sister wants it, and she herself doesn't want it. So I'm, I'm a little confused about why abdication isn't anywhere in the thought process, because we know I wasn't that sure gonna... she
2: didn't. Oh, sorry. Go
1: ahead. Well, because we know that whoever is queen can has some control over who takes over next. All you have to do to make the council think that her sister is a better choice is to just say, "Well, I'm not going to do anything."
2: (laughs) I wasn't sure that she didn't want it so much as she'd never considered it before. Though I suppose we don't get an emotional reaction. I find that believable. (laughs) I don't know if we get any kind of a reaction to what's happening other than shock, kind of to know even what she's thinking.
1: Could you grow up to late teenagerdom as the second in line? to the throne and never think about what it might be like to be first in line
2: well i mean if i was her maybe because i would always think about killing my sister so (laughs) you know (laughs) but on the flip side i mean i guess it depends on what kind of character she is which is probably my biggest feedback which is that i'm not I, i don't know i missed some of whatever Kristen was saying but i am not sure who this character is I really love the beginnings of the dynamic we get to see with her sister, but I'm not sure I know what it is exactly. I'm not sure which things that come up are new and which are things she's used to seeing. Like, um, so her sister immediately starts throwing temper tantrums when she finds out she's not going to be queen. She's screaming and yelling at the whole council and Celine, the nice sister versus Sabir, I believe her name is, the mean sister. That's how we're calling them now, I guess. Uh, Celine doesn't seem super surprised by any of her behaviors, so that made me think, oh, she always acts like this. But at the same time, I'm not sure, because it seems like some of the other characters are kind of maybe not in line with what's going on. And it seemed like Sabir was pretty, like, in control of herself earlier. And actually something um, Aaliyah mentioned about the armor, like, I really love that as a detail, but I wasn't actually quite sure what it was trying to tell me. It doesn't mean that she's super practical. Does it mean that they're running out of money? and they can't, you know, stand like if they bury armor, then there'll be less resources that are really valuable because it seems like the war has been very difficult. Does it mean something specifically about this sister that she is lacking in sensitivity and doesn't care about their mother, which it kind of seems like that might have been one of the things, but it could have been any of them, and I'm not sure which one it was.
0: That's a good point, and I think it's kind of like, well, exactly. If you have a point, you can draw infinite lines through it. So I think kind of what we're, we're getting at here is maybe we're looking as readers, we're looking for a few more data points. Um, it doesn't have to be huge, but just, you know, some signage or some some drops, a few lines here or there to make this character solid for us.
1: I do say I want to cut, we're um, talking about mental health, I, want to, I do want to cut Severe a little bit of slack. Not all the slack, but a little bit of slack for throwing a temper tantrum. I'm trying to imagine how insanely invalidating it would be. To find out that your mother a few weeks ago said, "Nope, this thing you've been training your whole life to do, I don't think you're worthy."
3: I actually I had that thought too because clearly this is not the best way to convey that information to the person that would have been queen. Like I, I just am trying to imagine being like woken up and being told like, "Hey, P.S. Your job is is over. That's not happening. It, it's not the most sensitive way this could have been conveyed."
0: In her defense, she is dead.
2: the mothers well i mean the council didn't have to handle it that way (laughs) yeah the council could have done it better oh
3: for sure oh for sure could have had like a real meeting (laughs) sat
2: down had some tea i don't know (laughs) I had like a technical thing, I don't know if you guys touched on this while well, my internet was being stupid, but I I men- I heard somebody mention something about showing I feel like we get into the middle of everything before we really understand what's going on. We don't get to see people in their normal setting before we see them in an extremely stressed out setting. That's kind of what I already said, but There's so many great little nuggets of, and my sister makes fun of me all the time. She doesn't say that. She says that she's constantly needling her. Or there's like a bunch of telling lines where there's like a line of dialogue and then Celine, the main character, explains to us why this is relevant or why she's offended or whatever else. Where if... If we knew everybody beforehand and like had seen this stuff happening, by the time we get to the inciting incident, we'll be like annoyed with Celine, we'll be incensed with Celine, we'll be like we know what's happening without having to stop the narrative over and over and over again to explain what's happening. I think that's a really good point um, and very concise way to express
4: that. I think what I was saying very, long-windedly, you know, very long windedly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I
2: missed your
0: feedback. <laughs> Well, to this author, thank you so much for submitting. We enjoyed reading your work. And Adrian, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much for having me. Be sure to keep an eye out for Sophie and the Bone Song. And go read Sweet and Bitter Magic. So good. Is there a date in April or I just have April on the outline. It's April 19th, April so long 19th. as the
4: supply chain doesn't continue this way.
2: So <laughs> the world is not end. Pre-order anyway. That's yeah. what we really yeah. want. Pre-order
0: anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so keep an eye out for Sophie and the Bone Song, April 19th. Our next episode will feature us, the Litsiverse crew. If you'd like a first chapter critique from us, get us your work by December 9th.
2: Please remember to like, subscribe, and comment on the podcast wherever you listen so others can find the show. From Caitlin, Cameron, Aaliyah, and Kristen, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.